0: Hello, and welcome to Enroute, the podcast where we talk about the journey of life. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. You know, I usually like to say this at the end of the podcast, but I kind of want to say it now, and that is to thank you for listening. And if you like what you are hearing, why don't you consider subscribing to the show? If you're subscribing to your favorite platform, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever platform you listen to. And while you're at it, it would really help if you would leave a rating or a review. When you do that, it makes it a lot easier for others to find this podcast. Finally, I want to let you know that Enroute does have a YouTube channel, And um, if you look in our show notes, there is a link. And if that's the way that you like to listen to podcasts, um, find that link and subscribe. Well, in today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about inclusion. One of the biggest gifts that mainline Protestantism has given to many people is its work in inclusion. It's the belief that Churches should be places where the walls that separate people by race or gender or sexual orientation are torn down. And mainline churches have been at the forefront of various movements, such as the civil rights movement, the work to welcome women into roles of leadership, and most recently to allow LGBTQ persons to participate openly and fully in church life. But are there limits to inclusion? For many years, mainline churches were involved in demographic inclusion, like what we just discussed above. That goal was to bring diversity into the life of the church. But when it came to the basics of the faith, stuff that's found in, say, the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, dealing with topics like the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or the resurrection. Those things were believed topics that everyone agreed with. But over the last two or three decades, there has been a shift happening um, over towards what might be called conceptual inclusion. Demographic inclusion is still happening, but this new inclusion is also happening. And here... This inclusion isn't, as I said, about the roles of women or LGBTQ people in the church, but it's really about allowing heterodox ideas in the larger church. One of the people who's probably the biggest proponent of this was the the uh, late uh, Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. Here, you are. Instead of just allowing people who are different, it's about allowing ideas that in some cases were not allowed in the church. Ideas like questioning the divinity of Christ or questioning the, the, that the resurrection even happened. So if you have this kind of inclusion, this kind of conceptual inclusion, what kind of church do you have? Well, according to our guest today, Episcopal priest Frederick Schmidt, it leaves mainline Protestantism with really no reason for existing. Schmidt is currently the vice rector of Good Shepherd Episcopal Church in Nashville. He is an Episcopal priest, a spiritual director, a retreat facilitator, conference leader, writer, and academic. Before he was in his current position, he held the Reuben P. Job Chair in Spiritual Formation at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, and where he directed the Job Institute of Spiritual Formation. So in this episode we talk about the dangers of conceptual inclusion, the loss of religion religious language in the public square and also in the life of the church. And what all this means for mainline Protestantism. With that, let's hear from Reverend Frederick Schmidt. Well, thank you for uh, joining me today on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Dennis. It's great to be here. It's good to meet you.
0: And, and good to finally meet you in person as well. Thanks. Um, I think the first thing that we want, I wanted to talk about is um, something that is near and dear to my own heart. It's, it's an issue that I think especially is uh, found throughout um, mainline Protestantism. And that is the question of inclusion. Right. And um, sometime last year, I believe it was in August or of last year, you wrote something um, talking using the word cognicide and about the concept of of, of inclusion and that, that, that how we've been practicing inclusion, that it, it was something that was at one time very specific to specific groups and um, has come to mean something totally different, and that that's something that is somewhat, well, not a good thing for for mainline churches. Um, Would you be willing to kind of go into uh, explaining what that is all about?
1: Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, As I recall, and I, you know, you kind of cautioned me about what we were going to be talking about, so I did look back at the article so that people don't think, wow, what Fabulous recall a year plus ago. But um, the the point I was making was, was that for much of recent mainline Protestant history, we've emphasized inclusion. And that emphasis on inclusion is what I'd maybe call demographic inclusion, meaning that it's been about reaching out and including varied groups of people in the life of the church. And of course, the definition of what that might actually entail varies a bit with the character of each congregation. Mm-hmm. And that but that emphasis has been largely one that's revolved around gender, or it's revolved around race, or it's revolved around sexual orientation, for example. But the thing that I've detected is is that in in very recent years, and in, in really I would guess probably the last couple of decades, that's actually shifted. And now what was about demographic inclusion around commonly held convictions in the church understood very differently and experienced different very differently by communities, of course but it's it's shifted from that kind of shared demographic inclusion in a conversation into what I might call conceptual inclusion, mm-hmm. which has meant that uh, increasingly what people are talking about is including points of view of such breadth that the relationship between some of those views and the life and the tradition of Mainline Protestantism and other parts of Christianity um, have begun to really stretch and fray because the conversations about become about including ideas that in a lot of ways are at odds with what any of us might identify as the heart of the Christian tradition. And I'm not thinking i'm not a I'm not an evangelical or a fundamentalist. I Really, describe myself probably as a an Orthodox Anglo-Catholic, mm-hmm. actually. If if people are wondering kind of where I hail from, but I do see tradition as kind of a river or a stream mm-hmm. that people find themselves in, and that uh, there, with a lot of uh, variation and a lot of conversation, it still shares in a common tradition. And what I've kind of detected in this changing approach to inclusion is an abandonment of that kind of belonging that's now begun to kind of emphasize uh, an inclusion that is actually at odds with the Christian tradition.
0: I think, so the way it sounds like what you're saying is, is that there was a demographic one where you had people from different backgrounds, but yet they shared in common, probably theological understandings. Whereas what seems to be happening now is having various points of view, sometimes that are actually could be even more opposed to a traditional understanding of Christianity. So that brings about a question, because the first kind at least is grounded in some sense of a shared common value. Right. The second one doesn't seem like it's any shared value. And so how do you build a church on that?
1: Well, I think that's the real question Um, from both an ecclesiological point of view, as well as a sociological point of view. But I I tend to emphasize the theological categories. Um, The difficulty is, is that, when it comes to shared convictions, um, you know my my tradition, for example, would describe itself as a as a creedal tradition organized around especially the Nicene Creed, but other creeds as well. Um, shared convictions define where you are and the thing that you belong to. Mm-hmm. And I think we we rightly grasped that at times boundaries and belonging had been used to exclude people in ways that were at odds with the message of Christianity itself. But now I think the challenge has changed. And what's becoming apparent is, is that in order to belong somewhere, you have to believe something. And if you begin to get a cohort of people who say, I don't believe in God, but I'm still a Christian pastor, or I don't believe that much of what Christianity has held historically is at all true, uh, but I'm still a bishop, then then what begins to happen is is that the whole concept of belonging begins to fray and i'm i from a the vantage point of being uh, both a, a priest or a pastor and as a theological educator my concern in that regard has less to do with running around and identifying people who don't belong mm-hmm. as it does to sort of say in a in a way that's gracious, look, we can't redefine Christianity endlessly and not lose its essence. At some point, it's really important for people to acknowledge what I believe takes me outside of the church.
0: Why do you think that there are people, because it seems like as you said, and, and when you talked about the fact of a pastor who doesn't believe in God, I was reminded of the um, pastor in Toronto. Um, yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, with the United, and, and that, that got into a problem with the United Church of Canada. Right. And it, it doesn't, I guess the thing is, is that why wouldn't these people just say, I don't believe in this anymore. So therefore I should leave this and find a place where I feel more comfortable, but instead feel like they have to be here. And and in that specific case in Toronto, you know, they were using a lot of the language of inclusion, but it's kind of like, how can you be a pastor and yet not believe in God and a Christian denomination? It was just, it was just very bizarre.
1: I think it is it is kind of bizarre, and I don't know of any studies that sort of account for, you know, statistically, why people cling to the church under those sorts of circumstances. All I all I know in terms of possible answers to that question are either anecdotal or they are guesses on my part. Um, I think that some people, if you're talking about clergy, um, vocationally, They don't know what else to do. And that may mean they can't conceive of their life in any other categories vocationally. Or it may mean that educationally, they don't feel that they're prepared to do anything else. And so they strive to redefine it in a way that is that leaves them pretty much where they are, but with a new agenda. Others I'm sure probably think that, you know, look, I've just grasped the truth in a new way, and I think the truth needs to be heard, and the church needs to be told this. Um, But I, I think that when you begin to think in those categories, you're not thinking very deeply about either the history of the church or the viability of a church when you when you begin to play theologically mm-hmm. uh, with ideas in that way and suggest well we can we can just reinvent it from the inside out. As far as lay people goes, you know what's interesting about it is is I think for lay people, um, you know maybe they stay because it's still their community, and it's still where they sense that they belong. But I think that the statistics that we're seeing about the number of people who are spiritual but not religious and the number of people who have exited the church entirely uh, in the wake of COVID-19 suggests that that kind of attachment to the church is pretty weak. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a study done in the early 90s Um, by three scholars who studied uh, the opinions, the the theological opinions of lay people in the Presbyterian church in an effort to get a window into why mainline churches, mainline Protestant churches were shrinking. And it's interesting because it's one of the few really large-scale statistical studies of a mainline Protestant church in that regard. And one of the things that they concluded was was that um, liberal mainline Protestants might even understand traditionally what the churches has identified as uh, credibly and that kind of thing, but that they held on so weakly to any of those convictions and reinterpreted them personally in such dramatic ways that their attachment to the church was very fragile. And it's interesting, the three scholars who did the work said that when they began to ask those people, well, what would bring you back? They discovered actually that people reported that there was really very little that the church could bring do to bring them back. Certainly wasn't programmatic. And the people who did the study said, you know, I think actually the only thing you can do is to talk in theological categories and try to explain uh, just exactly what you believe and offer as robust a defense of the importance of the Christian faith as you can possibly offer.
0: Well, what do you think has been the result of all of this? Um, as congregations, as denominations have been moving in this direction, um, How what effect has that, that had on, on local congregations?
1: I think it's really hurt local congregations and hurt them both individually and as well as aggregates. I mean, I think there are pockets here and there where churches have done reasonably well, but on the whole, I think if you look at the numbers, uh, you discover that actually a lot of mainline Protestant denominations are really shrinking, and that there's the loyalty of those members to a particular theological tradition within Protestantism is really quite fragile. I've been puzzling over why so many people disappeared with COVID-19, and I think it's because COVID-19 intersected with that fragile set of convictions. People spent a year with a socially more acceptable reason for not being present in church, and now the reason that they're not coming back is that they've they've enjoyed enough social separation, in-person connection with parishes that now, you know, they're ghosting their own congregations and they're quietly disappearing from sight. You know, you you look at the numbers of people who may be coming to socially distanced in-person services and you look at your numbers online and you think, no matter how I read these numbers, it can amount to my whole congregation. Mm. So I think it's really, I think it's really hurt mainline Protestantism. And yet
0: um, I remember years ago, and in the early nineties, kind of I was out of college and kind of doing a lot of questioning of my own faith. And, and one of the things I did read was um, several books by John Shelby Spong. Right. And they were interesting. Um, but I, I was too much grounded in what I was that I, it's just like, yeah, this is no, this is not really working. Um, but yet he had, he was very strong in the belief. In fact, it was one of his books that Christianity has to change or die, but it almost seems like to say that if it does change, it actually does bring that death. And I guess my question is, is why was he, his kind of belief so intent that this is the way we must go in a modern age? Um, and that's something that I know people have followed. I, lots of people in his passing were talking about how important he was, but it seems like in the aggregate, that type of belief doesn't help the the body of, of the church.
1: Right. And I would agree with you on that score. Um, I, I know that one of the things that Bishop Spong did that had a powerful impact and was profoundly attractive to a lot of people was his insistence on demographic inclusion, mm-hmm. that first kind of inclusion that I mentioned. And I think that that understandably won him a number of, you know, loyal readers loyal followers, people in his own diocese and across the Episcopal Church as well as elsewhere, who really felt supported by his efforts mm-hmm. to include people in the life of the church. Interestingly enough, in a way, he's kind of a bridge figure though, because he's also a bishop who sort of pushed conceptual inclusion mm-hmm. of the kind that I've suggested really Test well, and you did too, test the boundaries of the church. I remember when I, when I read his book on why the church must change or die, I thought, well, the way in which he redefines the church is no longer the church. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're going to make this argument, and, and theoretically you can, then you ought, you ought to admit that this is no longer what anyone understands to be the church. Uh, And I think that's where the problem arises. I, you know, Dennis, the, the thing that that whole sort of development led me to believe a long time ago is, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand, it's, I'm not saying that I think the goals of demographic inclusion were wrong. But I do wonder whether the word inclusion itself was the right choice. Inclusion's a political term. Mm -hmm. It's not a a theological term, it's a a sociological or political term. And in order to hold together what you and I are talking about, the boundaries that give the community life and the grace that is necessary to include people in that communal life. I think we would have been far better off uh, talking about uh, categories that arrive out of Jesus's own arise out of Jesus's own ministry, baptism, the mercy of God, um, and uh, the the ways in which. Uh, mercy extends across boundaries that we set up artificially around our faith. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the point that New Testament scholars made about uh, the fact that uh, Jesus uh, really found himself at odds with the Pharisees because their emphasis on the holiness code narrowed their definition of what it meant to belong to the people of God. You know, the people of God belong to a particular lineage. The people of God keep certain food laws Mm -hmm. and and they observe certain purity codes. And Jesus finds himself in Samaria and in Galilee and with Gentiles and Samaritans and with women. And he begins to preach a kingdom that in terms of the mercy of God questions the way in which the law is being interpreted and goes to the saving intentions of God as that sort of measure of the path forward. And I, I can't help but wonder whether or not one of the things that's been a problem for us is is that we we latched on this onto this political term, which by definition was empty of theological definition, other than to be included in the membership, mm-hmm. and whether that's and whether or not that kind of created in to some degree the problem we now have. I don't know if that makes sense or not.
0: Oh, yeah, it makes total sense. I, I think um, one of the uh, a, a fellow pastor, uh, colleague of mine who's a disciple, but actually grew up um, Episcopalian, um, Doug Skinner, has talked about the fact, he was in a meeting a, f- a few weeks ago that was talking about racial justice. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about what different ways could you, could we kind of further um kind of healing and right. his whole concept that he brought up and this was a, a group of church people was communion and mm-hmm. everyone's look was just kind of blank and they could yeah. not understand that you know i got it i knew what he was getting at because mm-hmm. com- communion is something that brings people together and especially for us i mean for my tradition as a um, disciple it is something that is about breaking right. boundaries and right, right. and the thing is is that we don't really use that language because uh, i have not heard it as much talking about race i have not heard it about sexuality either um
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that we tend to as i think you're, you're correct in saying inclusion is a political term and that term in some ways shapes us i think because right. we start to use and and to act in the ways of politics but not in the ways of the church
1: yes i think that i think you're exactly right and and you raise a really important and related point and that is is that not only does the political term lack the theological content but when we use it in such a singular fashion, we also lose the ability to appreciate, use, and appropriate the theological categories that we do have. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, one of the things that really surprised me uh, was how little the language of the New Testament figured into our larger conversation about race over the last year or more. Mm-hmm. You know, the breaking down of walls, you know, drawing on Ephesians, um, you know, the, the body of Christ is a place where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. and And those are rich biblical concepts and theological concepts that we could have built on and talked about their contemporary significance for us in the place that we find ourselves, and ask what a truly Christian definition of a different reality would look like. But it really didn't figure into a lot of what I read or heard, Well, even among and, Christians.
0: Yeah, and I mean, what is the result of that? Because I think growing up, I always, you know, hearing about the civil rights movement, that was just doused in in the language of the Absolutely. church. Um what has happened that for, for you know something that has been an issue that has been such a part of American society, but has also been so tied to the church, at least in the last year or so, doesn't seem to be tied to the church anymore. And no, what does that do?
1: Well, I think what it does is it is it leaves us with largely political language. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, there are a number of implications that flow from that. One is is that, is that uh, people's conversation then, uh, the longer it remains purely political, uh, the less people think there is anything to be found in terms of the church's theological tradition. So you have people who sort of say, well, I've, I've been working with this theological word game to make what's really a political point. And now that I've used purely political language all this time, I've, I realize I don't really need the theological language any longer. And of course, then what's lost is the whole connection between our lives, uh, the work and the lives that we live and their connection with God. Mm-hmm. And, and so I've read articles about clergy in both the Jewish and the Christian tradition, who, you know, they use political language for so long that they they no longer really believe in the power of the language of the gospel. Um, and I think that's a tragic loss uh, to the life of the church. I think it also means that the life of the church is more anemic. I mean, I think the church ought to be The church is the place where these transformations of relationships, the healing of relationships with God and with one another, are are meant to be embodied because this is the place where we share certain convictions about God, about the saving work of God in Christ, and about how those relationships are supposed to be changed. And there may be changes in society that look something like the changes that we dream of as Christians. But the church is the only place where the convictions, both about God and about our lives, as well as those visions, come together. And I, I think, I think that's a terrific loss as well.
0: I'm reminded back in the '90s, um, there were a lot of when when there was a lot of conversation in churches about um, sexuality. Mm-hmm. And churches were talking about um, sometimes whether to be an open and affirming congregation or or whatever. And I would always hear after a certain decision had been reached. Mm -hmm. There was this phrase that I would hear over and over again, and that was, well, we have some healing to do now. And so there was always this language about you know there was a need to to make this decision but once the decision had been made then it's it's kind of we have to kind of i guess you know tying up the 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 binds uh, that have been frayed i mean to kind of i know i'm butchering lincoln's um talk <laughs> there but um you know it's it's that sense of of a community a community and that that, you know, even in a community you disagree, but when you disagree, there it's still this sense of of trying to weave things back. Right. I don't hear that language anymore, especially and when it comes to different issues. Um, when it's race or sexuality, it's just not heard anymore. And and what I you hear is far more, there's not a really a talk about community or or concern about the, the person. The, you know, on the other side, that may have a different opinion than you do. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that may be an example of how, you know, the word healing, I think, is in many ways a religious term. I mean, I, I know we use it outside of the church, oh. but we use it, but it is a religious term. But that's not a term I'm hearing as much anymore. And I don't know if that if you've experienced that, but that's just something I've noticed.
1: No, I've noticed it. I've noticed it too, and I think it's it in part again. It's about this emphasis on politics. Uh, we we now have a zero sum <laughs> political environment mm-hmm. where I can't win unless you lose. And so, what what's happened is is that there is no sort of emphasis necessarily on shalom or peacemaking. Um, and in a political environment, there's there's no sort of impetus to draw people together in that way. I think in religious communities, when we when we've talked about healing and we've talked about peace in the church, we've we've talked about it a priority that is in the first place and above all, the priority of is God's priority. You know, I tell I tell people when we talk about the liturgy that the reason we confess our sins and are absolved of our sins and then exchange the peace is because those two events in the liturgy are deeply related. We confess our sins and we're absolved of our sins so that we can offer the peace of Christ to one another, the wholeness of Christ in God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, you know, that takes a commitment to a vision of God's work um, that is, is, is healing and gracious uh, toward us all, and that transcends any kind of intermediate, sort of place we might camp out and go to war with one another. Mm. But once it's all political, then it becomes a matter of winning turf and of of making sure that some people are in and some people are out. And then uh, you've got a completely different calculus uh, going. And it doesn't look anything, to go back to your earlier point, it doesn't look like anything like the conversation about civil rights in the 1960s, or the vision that Martin Luther King so eloquently sketched for all of us. You know, I mean, he was an advocate for civil rights and an advocate for the black community, but he was also an advocate for this larger vision to which we were all accountable. And uh, I, I, you know, when you ask, you know, what do we lose? That's maybe the worst of it is that we lose that vision.
0: So it sounds like it basically it creates a less graceful society in some ways. There's less mercy to be um, given out.
1: Oh, absolutely. And now we have the media-driven means of of reinforcing that lack of mercy in one way or another. And uh, people don't hesitate to do it. They don't give it any a second thought.
0: So Lynn, the question is what can be done? How do you really try to infuse the public square, but not even just the public square, just the church itself
1: mm-hmm. into
0: that language of, um, that is one that is more kind of grounded in the theology and the history of the, of the church and not trying to kind of Either be into the language of politics and then also, I don't want to say a little less diverse when it comes to conceptual diversity, but maybe that is what I mean, but to kind of bring things in that is more kind of together instead of kind of everyone does their own thing, which is I think what conceptual inclusion kind of seems to lead to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to go back to that study I mentioned earlier from the 90s, the one that was done by and Johnson, and Lloydens are the names uh, that were involved. I think that one thing we have to do is we do have to use theological categories, which means that at least in the life of the church, we've got a lot of catechesis to do. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't need to be the old, you know, dry, boring, Uh, here's a question and here's an answer. Memorize the answer and you'll be quizzed on this next Sunday uh, kind of approach to catechesis. I think what we have to do is we have to begin to really acquaint people uh, in detail and and in a way that's winsome and courageous um, and unequivocal about its importance. And we can do that in our pulpits. Um, We need to do it Um, in the kind of educational and formational opportunities that we have. And I prefer the word formation as opposed to education, just because I I try to really push hard on the fact that that we're not just acquiring information. We're becoming different people as we journey into God. So I think that that's a big part of it. I think it's it's uh, also really important for us to begin to structure the life of our communities around that reality, um, to to go back and think about what we do in any given year, and ask, you know, where are our communities giving expression to kingdom life, in what we in what we do and what we're devoted to. Um, And I think it also means that we've really got to reclaim the connection between worship and our spiritual lives and the efforts that we make in terms of our communities. I don't see those things as separate. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a real mistake to think of the spiritual life as separate from the liturgical life and the spiritual and the liturgical somehow separate from a life of service. I think that those are all deeply integrated with one another and rely on one another, and you get distortions if you neglect any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we do we do a lot of half listening in the church, and we've got to stop doing the half listening. Um, in terms of the life of the larger community, and I and I always think about this. Uh, being a blogger, something I never thought I would end up describing myself as. Who knew? Uh, I think what we have to do as a church is we have to recognize the fact that we can and should build partnerships with people to the extent that we share certain goals, but we also have to then be as forthright about why we as Christians are involved in those goals and witness to them. I think one of the reasons that a lot of people have been have felt that their faith didn't mean as much to them is that they felt that they had to surrender all of that all of that uniqueness from the Christian tradition in order to be heard. But I don't I don't think um, that you know that being committed, you know, or being thinking critically about our faith is by definition being judgmental. Mm-hmm. I think we can witness to what we believe and why, and yet, you know, work with other people and make those kinds of generous partnerships.
0: It seems uh, you had used the word um, about using formation rather than education reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um commentator Yavala been. And yes. uh-huh. he his most recent book was on institutions yes. and uh the need to kind of rebuild a lot of institutions that have kind of fallen into disrepair. And that one of the things that has happened over the last 20, 30 years is how institutions were places where you were formed. Yes. Um so whether that was a church or congress or whatever or the military these were places that in some way formed you into a different person or at least a different way of thinking of things exactly and that now these places have in some cases have become performative
1: mm-hmm. so
0: it, it's a place where you know you get to be you um you know congress now is not about putting together legislation, you know, going through all the things, it's about memes and right. um, all of that. Do you think that the the move that had happened within the church towards a conceptual diversity, in a way, was moving from a formative way of looking at church to performative? And maybe that wasn't the intent, but did you think that, that was the result?
1: I think it is. I, I think it is, and, uh, and I think, too, uh, there, was, there was a way in which inclusion became so much the only value that now people don't quite know what to say no to, mm-hmm. you know, as, as long as it's the new thing, as long as it's the undiscovered and unplumbed sort of area where in the past these things, these ideas have not been included, then they should be included, which of course then, you know, ignores that whole issue about what it takes to belong, Mm -hmm. and I think it's why our churches participate in in the compromised situation that our institutions are in, Um, I'm I'm inclined to think, though, that one of the things we've got to grasp if we're going to really get a handle on all of this is that we've got to admit that it's not quite accurate to say that our institutions have failed. That that makes it sound like some force out there has begun to fail us Mm -hmm. when in point of fact we have failed us and leaders in our institutions have failed us. It's not the institutions per se, but it's the, it's, it's the fact that we have failed to really shoulder our heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that's, you know, when we begin to talk about the church, for example, we're talking about scripture, we're talking about the traditions of the church. We're talking about what the church has learned under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And if we turn our backs on those things and say, you know, no, it's, you know, what, it's whatever is happening in this moment, we lose any way of evaluating what it is that we're kind of taking in in terms Mm -hmm. of our institutions. And I think, you know, and I think that's why we are where we are now. Uh, And I think you're right about public institutions, too. You know, I look at the three branches of government. And I think one of the biggest problems is that all three of them are either not doing uh, what they're meant to do or they're doing things they weren't meant to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's it's made presidents more important than they should be. And it's made. Congress less effective than it ought to be. And it's put the Supreme Court in being quasi-legislative. Um, and uh, that's really um, had a corrosive effect on the way we conduct our lives as a nation.
0: How, I, th- I think he even talked about this in the article, was the, what's going on within, within the United Methodist Church.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. and that I I did mention Methodism yeah yeah. and comes from working with Methodists for over 20 years that all happened
0: (laughs) it makes sense (laughs) but I think that their their whole kind of the battles that they've been having especially over um, sexuality especially about the uh, allowing um, LGBTQ clergy to or to be clergy that there has been a lot of it seems like that's an example of how all of this is happening in, you know, it's a big example. Um, how do you, how have you seen that work itself in in the United Methodist Church? And um, this whole concept of inclusion, or demographic inclusion, it seems like they're talking about, but there also seems to be a, a lot of discussion really about this conceptual inclusion that you're also talking, you've talked about?
1: Well, there, there is. And, and unfortunately, I think one of the effects that it's had, um, I guess the way I would put it is, is I would say that I'm not sure the Methodist church has had a really deep theological conversation about where it is. There are people who make theological arguments but, of course, in our politicized atmosphere, those arguments get dismissed, regardless of which side they come from. Uh, they get dismissed as sort of mere political ploys. And it's really interesting in that regard, because in the Methodist tradition, uh, conferencing, which is where the, where the notion of an annual conference or a general conference, meaning the big sort of conference uh, of meetings of the church as a whole, were about actually listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and Mm. digging in and talking about the the theological issues at stake at any one time in the life of the church. And that's been lost. I wrote an article where I described I described what goes on at at big national conferences as politicking in purple, which was aimed more at what went on in my own denomination. But but you know the Meth- the Methodists may not wear purple quite as often, but they still do the the same sort of thing. And the the issue I think is now now what's happened is is that these these events where we're supposed to gather and and explore the mind of Christ at any one time and any one juncture in the life of the church have instead become legislative events where everyone is looking for a political advantage. It's the politics of leverage. And yes, we still pray when we get together with those things and we we still have worship services, but the relationship between that prayer and those worship services to what goes on during those meetings is about the same as the relationship between the national anthem and what goes on in a football game. It doesn't really have much at all uh, to do with it once the players take the field. And that's that's I think where we're what's happening to the Methodist Church. And it's it's sad uh, because in a way, because of its polity, the Methodist Church is very much more an international church. Mm-hmm. Than the Episcopal Church is. I mean, there are other branches of Anglicanism, but we're a loose federation, and each one of us has our own uh, separate life uh, as as members of the Anglican Communion. And what we what you have in the United Methodist Church is an authentically global church that I don't think is likely to be global much longer. It's not even likely to be a national church any longer. Hmm. And that's going, to, that's going to have tough implications for Methodist congregations and for seminaries and for the institutions of the United Methodist Church, because it's hard to know how all of those will continue when they part company. Mm-hmm. So where do you
0: see, I want to say pushback, but pushback always seems negative. But where do you see a kind of a counter movement where there are people trying to reclaim the language of the church, um, reclaim the way of the church and how to deal with some of these issues? Um, because we you know, probably have spent the last 20, 30 years and maybe even more really moving away from that. Are there examples, especially within mainline denominations of people trying to recapture that?
1: Well, that's a tough one they're pretty scattered um, and a lot of them boil down to individual pastors yeah. and scattered church leaders you know bishops and others uh, denominational leaders of one kind or another who are speaking out about it um, but I think it's uh, but I think it's pretty scattered uh, I I I wish I could be more optimistic about it right now, but uh, of late I haven't I haven't been particularly optimistic. To be honest, I wonder whether if if there isn't a kind of larger pushback, as you put it, uh, or a contrary vision, uh, whether or not we're stuck in a pattern where denominationally at any rate there's there's going to be continued decline there'll be local exceptions and specific congregations that will find a way to thrive but those people are saying you know we're not going to divide ourselves over politics i'm not going to i'm not going to use the pul- the pulpit 52 times a year to share my political views with you or to make it sound as if to be a real Christian, you have to share my political views. You know, I want I want us to preach uh, the Word of God and to find ourselves challenged by it. You know, Frederick Douglass talked about prophetic speech, and he, he said that prophetic speech points to a voice that lies beyond us, that makes demands of all of us. Those aren't the exact words that Douglas used. They, they were undoubtedly much more eloquent. But but I think he had such an important point. Uh, the, only, the only way to move forward is to hold ourselves mutually accountable to the voice of God. Mm-hmm.
0: One question kind of related, but um, mm-hmm. kind of a, a good way of kind of closing some of this, is a lot of your... Um, blog posts over the years have really talked about how much the mainline church has fused itself i guess for lack of a better word with kind of progressive politics
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: now especially within the last few years but i could go back 30 some years there's always been a lot of talk and especially within mainline churches about american evangelicalism getting kind of into bed with the religion with the, the american right
1: mm-hmm. right yeah
0: why hasn't yeah. there been that much reflection of what is happening within mainline churches I mean, especially within mainline churches it seems like there's a lot of the um not seeing the the log in in our eyes but worrying about the spec of of
1: Evangelicalism. Evangelicalism. You know, I think the I think that's a really interesting question, Dennis. And I think that the answer to that has to do with the relationship since the since the modernist uh, crisis, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, you know, so now we're talking. We're talking about a trend that we're almost at the century mark or getting close to it. And I think what happened was was that. Mainline Protestantism and fundamentalism squared off over issues. Mm-hmm. And for fundamentalists, at least for a time, the problem wasn't with mainline Protestantism, though it eventually became that. It was, it was fundamentalists' struggle with modernity and with science and so on. Um, I think the problem for mainline Protestantism is, is that in reaction to fundamentalism, a lot, of, a lot of mainline Protestants became concerned above all things not to be thought of as fundamentalist. Hmm. And once we became concerned with that, we began to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. We, we, didn't, we didn't want to be biblicists, And we didn't want to be literalists when it came to the Bible. And we didn't want to be inerrantists when it came to the issue of inspiration. But the fundamentalists were also dedicated to certain theological propositions. So suddenly we began to wonder, well, should you really be committed to any theological position at all? And I think the reason we haven't been able to see what's been going on in our own circles is because we've just been so preoccupied with the fundamentalists. Mm. Uh, that that it's it's been easier to talk about them than it has been to ask questions about themselves or about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think the and the fundamentalists have undoubtedly made that. Uh, mistake as well. I've been teaching a series on the book of Revelation, and we've been talking about dispensationalist views of the book of Revelation and the Left Behind series. And I've, you know, I've I've said to people in our parish, no one ever, ever grew spiritually by minding someone else's spiritual life or about figuring out who's going to hell. (laughs) That's not... You know, you you know, you can only grow spiritually by allowing God to prompt you to look at your own life.
0: Well, I remember it wasn't left behind, but were other series that were related to that because I grew up kind of a, from an evangelical background. Oh okay. and um yeah, that didn't really help my spiritual life. Let's just <laughs> let's just put it that way. I bet not end times doesn't really help you. I, I don't know why people think it does, because
1: it doesn't. No, it certainly doesn't. No, no, not at all.
0: It just leaves in a lot of sleepless nights.
1: Exactly, oh. exactly. And boy, I've talked to those folks over the years. Hmm.
0: Well, thank you. This is, um, I think this has been an important discussion.
1: Um, Thanks, Dennis. I really, yeah. I've really enjoyed talking with you about it and have appreciated your insights into it. It's been helpful to me.
0: Well, thank you. You know, I think that obviously these issues, especially um, talking about demographic inclusion are important issues. Um, I think the question is how do we talk about them? And right. and it seems like we are as a, as a church bypassing the great language of the church. And I think that has implications. It does. As, as you have so um, clearly brought forth.
1: Thanks, Dennis. I think it does too. And I pray we'll all find a way forward in that regard. we will be better off for it.
0: I do as well. Well, thank you um, for Thanks, taking Dennis. the time. All yeah. right.
1: It's really nice to meet you and I've really enjoyed it.
0: thank Reverend Schmidt for taking the time to interview uh, with me. I have read his blog for several years, so it was really a delight to actually chat with him um, in person, and I do really hope um, we can chat again. It was a a good time. With that, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, Make sure to visit our website, which is nrootpodcast.org. And while you're there, you can sign up to be on the mailing list of uh, the newsletter, Letters of Transit. Uh, You can also listen to past episodes and read some um, articles that I've written. And while you're at the website, consider supporting this podcast by making a donation. When you give, you're helping to cover some of the costs that are associated with making this podcast. And that allows me to continue to produce content. That is worth a listen. So, please consider donating and uh, go to the Enroute website, enroutepodcast.org backslash donate. And that is it for this episode of Enroute, Notes on the Journey of Life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed.